Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, when Netflix and chill actually just means Netflix and Netflix and definitely no chill, if you know what I mean. Later on, my interview with Oleg Stavitsky, who built an algorithm that can automatically generate exactly the kind of music you want to listen to and got to deal with a major record label in the process. But first, we're going to dig back into something we talked a bit about last week on the show, the Samsung Galaxy Fold. I've been covering tech a long time, and I've never seen a phone release quite like this one. So here to talk about all the weirdness of the last week, Joanna Stern and Christopher Mims. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. So, Mims, are you as sad as I am that I haven't gotten to try a Galaxy Fold yet? Truthfully, yeah, I finally succumbed to the marketing hype. I mean, all it is is a phone that folds, but yes, I want to try it. <laughs> okay. I would like to so, apologize to you, David, here for the for the public record that I'm sorry I did not send you the review unit as we had we had planned and plotted, but Samsung came to my place of work yesterday and captured the phone from me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wait. So that's that's the that's the last page yeah, of, this the story, end of the story, which is bananas. Uh, but you, this phone has. Like, I think ruined is sort of a safe word to use. This phone has ruined the last week or so of your life. And, it really has. Uh, I like I, I kind of want you to walk through what's been going on here because it's it's been weird for you. And it's also like this is one of the weirdest big tech company things I think I've ever seen. So, like, walk us through yeah. the last, what is it, nine, ten days of your life now. Yeah, so I'll start last Monday. I went to Samsung's marketing event or PR event and went to go pick up the Fold. They were announcing that day more details about the phone and the fact that it was going to launch on April 26th. And I picked and up this the- we should say for anyone who doesn't know this is Samsung's $2000 foldable phone. It has a screen on the outside and a bigger one on the inside and it's like a phone you open into a tablet. Just for anyone who has not followed this, if you've been under a rock for 10 days, that's what's going on. And so I go, I pick up this phone. I'm so excited. I I'm told I get a kind of fancy experience and they show me how it's going to work and there's this it's this crazy mirrored box they open it and here's this phone and then they give me a bag and say here's the phone you can have it for 10 days review it ask us questions and then we'll need it back in 10 days I told them no I'm going to send it to David after I'm done with 10 days but long story short I left there with this phone and I'm I take it out of the box I get to my office I start playing with it I'm I'm testing it for the good part of that day and I was actually really quite blown away at first at like how well this thing works. Like, wow, like I felt like I'm really holding the future in my hands. I guess it was Monday night. I'm trying to like really recall the details. But Monday night, I'm sort of playing with it in bed. And I realized like, oh, there's a screen protector on the in the corner of this. And I like put my nail under it a little bit and start peeling it a little bit. And then have this, the PR reps voice in my head who said, you have to return this phone in mint condition, so don't mess it up, you know, keep the box in order and everything. So I decided I'm not going to peel this screen protector off. But I looked at it and I was like, okay, so this must be like the screen protector that comes with the Galaxy S10 that is their recent phones that all come with screen protectors you can't take off. So then Tuesday afternoon, I'm still enjoying the fold. And again, I'm just like, wow, this is working pretty well. It's, you know, this this has been, I, I'm, I'm surprised. Netflix is great to watch on this thing. It's just, you know, it's, I wouldn't probably recommend this to anyone for $2,000, but wow, like great on Samsung. 
Wednesday comes along in the morning, I sort of realize, oh, okay, like this screen in the top is peeling a little bit. We'll probably have to like put some tape on it to to make sure like it doesn't come up in the photo shoot or in the video. That morning, I give the phone to our, our in-house photographer and he sends me an email. Actually, I think it was like right when we we're doing this podcast, he sends me an email saying, you know, can I peel the screen protector off? He's like, I tried to take it off a little bit and, it, and it's not coming off. And I was like, no, no, don't don't remove it. And that's when we see a couple hours after that. Reports start to surface all over Twitter that either two, one of two things has happened to some review units. One, some people's phones have just stopped working. Things happened to the screen. We're not really sure what happened, but the screens just stopped working or had slight issues with them. Um, and by slight issues, I mean like the screen starts flickering. And there was a really funny meme going around where like they placed some uh, like house music to this flickering screen. <laughs> and then On the other side, there are people who have peeled these screen protectors off and almost immediately or within the next couple of hours, the screens just stop working. So you're they're like, I peeled this thing off. And then you see like pictures of sort of like cellophane. Uh, Mark Gurman at Bloomberg did this. Um, uh, MKBHD did this and their phones just stopped working. So and again, we should say that's a perfectly reasonable thing to have done because it, it like even as the our photographer found out it looks like the thing that comes on the packaging that you would peel off before you start to use the phone that's basically just there to protect it in in route to you yeah and i should uh, say like there is a like little a gap the there's like a gap between the screen and the and the hinge around the screen where you see a piece of plastic like it, it looks like there is a protector or something covering the screen right so My immediate reaction would have been to peel that thing off yeah. And, you know, uh, look, I've been beat up a lot for trying to peel this thing off. It is a I, I believe normal users would 100 percent try to peel this thing off. Yeah. So actually, we were podcasting last week and we start to see these this news about these phones breaking. And I decided to tweet a photo of the peeling off of, of on my phone. And Samsung says they're looking into all of this. And we finally get a statement from Samsung around, was it Thursday morning or Wednesday evening, saying they're looking into some of these breaking review units and that these screen protectors must not be peeled off. This is part of the phone design. But that was when they said also that they weren't, it was like basically everything is fine. Yep. A couple of reviewers did a dumb thing. We're still launching the phone. Nothing is actually wrong. Just don't take off the screen protector and everything will be fine. So that's, yes. that at that moment is Samsung's stance. Yes. And also we are investigating. Like I said, there's one of two things happening to the phone. There's two buckets happening. One of some phones are just breaking out of the blue, it seems. Right. And they're going to investigate that. And they've, they're they going to ship these units back to Korea and they're going to investigate it. The peeling people basically don't peel this thing. It will break the phone. It's part of the screen. Okay. Thursday morning, I go to a video shoot shoot for the for the video to go with my review. I'm about to start shooting at an origami shop in Brooklyn, and Samsung PR calls me frantically saying, we must come get this phone back. If you peel this screen even just a little bit more, it could break, and we don't want those images out there. And I'm like, what? You know, this is this is the phone. This is the phone. You you have this peeling screen and it's on there, but it's not. It's still working. And they're pretty adamant that they want the phone back. And that's when I kind of decide, you know what, this thing is not ready. And I'm going to write a non-review of this phone, which is basically to say, I probably wasn't going to recommend this thing. I was enjoying it till I, it, all these problems started ca- happening. But the fact that one, these phones are just breaking out of nowhere. We don't really know why. And then two, if you peel a sticker off your screen, it will break. Your $2,000 phone will break. <laughs> just feels like, you know, I can't in my right mind write a real review of this thing. Yeah, I feel like it went for you in that in that basically one day it went from sort of neat 
oddity that most people shouldn't buy, but like if you want to throw money at it, you'll probably enjoy it to like no human in their right mind should ever even think about purchasing this thing. As Ye- it is. Yeah. And I just like in that moment when they were asking for this phone back that has a slight peel, I'm like, what are you going to do after you ship this and people start peeling at screens? You're going to ask for them back and you're going to swap them all out? Like that to was be clear at that moment. They were still saying, oh, it's going to launch on time. Yes. They said yep. it was going to launch on time. Just They didn't like the idea of bad PR out there with a peeling screen, and they didn't want the phone to break. They didn't want the phone to break anymore. And actually, like, at that point, the phone is kind of broken, kind of like when a Band-Aid starts to fall off. Like, that's what was happening. Like, dirt was getting underneath that thing. It was all kind of grimy, and yeah, it wasn't a good look for them. I can understand why they wanted it back. So I spent the next 24 hours, maybe a little bit less, writing my piece, making a video. I had to can my whole video review. And I should say that also on Thursday afternoon, we went out to go shoot a little bit more for the video because I came up with this idea like, let's talk about things you should peel and let's talk about things you should fold right now and was trying to have some fun with it. And I decided to stick a hot dog in the phone. Like you do. <laughs> like <laughs> one you know, dog. Famous stuff. last yeah. words. <laughs> and so on Friday, we published this piece and it definitely got quite a, a bit of attention, as did most of the reports at this point. The Verge had a lot, had also had their review, which their first unit had broken. Dieter Bowen's first unit had, bro- unit had broken. And so they were pretty ahead of this story. Uh, CNBC, their unit had also broken from that first bucket of issues, and they were ahead of this story. And so then we published, and there was definitely a lot of, you know, people said I was being quite brutal on on this phone. But I, I was, I actually, before we published, I said to our editor, I don't know if I'm being harsh enough here. Like, I think we really need to hold this company, like, like we really need to hold them to the fire here. Like, they're, they're shipping something next week, and they have not, at this point, again, they were still shipping. They're shipping something next week that is so likely to break. And so over the weekend, people were really mad about the hot dog. Um, really mad. What a great sentence. People, some Samsung fans were really unhappy with my review. Um, they thought I was being really disrespectful for the fo- to the phone by putting the hot dog in there. Korea, some Korean press were really quite upset about the hot dog. And um, I don't want to apologize because I, I, I don't believe the phone had feelings. Are you going to be unable to travel to that country now? I definitely am not going to Korea anytime soon. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you need to apologize just to really, you know, throw water on that one. You know, maybe they they seem, you know, I will apologize. Maybe it wasn't fair to the phone. You know, the phone might have feelings and not have liked the hot dog (laughs) being in in it. Um, Samsung can't make a phone that folds, but it can make a phone that has feelings. Right. Yes. That seems possible. Yeah. You know, this is I don't even know. Has this whole thing been making any sense? It just is just this is really therapeutic for me to just talk about it here. We don't even have to publish this podcast. We're here just for you. feels yeah, really it. good for me. You know, the weekend was hard. There was a lot of people that are very angry at me and sent some very harsh emails and YouTube comments, which I didn't read after I read a couple of them. So those are there. And then Monday morning. Actually, Sunday night, I was emailing with our reporter, Tim Martin, in Korea, who covers Samsung and uh, is based in Seoul. And you know, I said, there, there's got to be something going on. They, they can't launch this phone. And we kind of went back and forth. And by the time I woke up on Monday morning, his story had published that, um, well, I think it was a, a little bit after I woke up. It was Monday Eastern time. He had sources that had said Samsung is going to delay this phone. And then later Monday, around 1 p.m. Eastern, Samsung issued their statement saying we are delaying this phone right now because not of the sticker, though they do mention that they need more time to work on the messaging to consumers and to make that sticker or, sorry, protective layer more embedded into the screen. But they also are quite 
it seems concerned and want to look into the other phones that are breaking. And one of the things they say in the statement, too, is that they seem to have found debris that had gotten into the hinge. And so that is one of the reasons those other units, the ones from CNBC and The Verge, had been breaking. And so, yeah, so, Samsung has uh, delayed the phone. Right. And that, that to me, is the key. Like, they didn't just say, you know, we're delaying it two weeks while we figure out a thing or while we put a label on the screen protector that says, don't take this off. They basically sort of tacitly said, this phone is not shipping yeah. in its current form. Yeah. Uh, and we are going to make some what appears to be pretty substantial change to it before they actually ship it. Correct. And and up until the publishing of the piece on Friday, and we published around what, uh, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock Eastern, I had been on the phone with Samsung asking repeatedly, is this thing still shipping? And yes, they had still planned to ship. And right. I also asked repeatedly, what is going to be the messaging inside the box to let people know about the, the protective layer? Because I was quite concerned about that. I mean, my piece talks about both of the issues facing the screen, but I was really quite concerned with people are going to peel this thing off or it's going to come off over time. And they still didn't know, right? Like they they would not confirm that there would be something on top of the screen that would say, do not peel this off out of the Mm. box. So, you know, it was clearly like watching this company sort of scramble at the last minute to figure out what they were going to do. It reminded me of the the iPhone. Was it the iPhone 4? The whole antenna gate thing where Apple's answer was just like, you're holding it wrong. Uh, which was a wild thing to say, but kind of eventually went away. And it felt like Samsung was just going to do that and then wound up doing something a lot more drastic. I mean, I'd like to say it was the hot dog. <laughs> I feel like you you really get results. You're like 60 Minutes era John Stossel and his salad days, whether it's <laughs> butterfly keyboards or, uh, you know, quote unquote laptops that don't really work on your lap or yeah. now folding <laughs> phones. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're really I mean, holding power to account here. Yeah. I mean, I look, I actually think in that time what might have what likely happened is they got the review units back from CNBC and from The Verge and they started to look really closely at yes, this thing is very fragile. Something can get easily into this hinge, similar to the butterfly keyboard, frankly. And there might have been something here we didn't see because we did not do enough real world testing. What is super confusing is the real world testing part, because I just feel like I've seen we've all seen these or I don't know. I'm a nerd. I've seen these videos of like the robots that test consumer devices, like the robot that opens the car door 10,000 times so that Ford knows the hinge isn't going to break. Like, don't you just isn't that standard practice? Don't people just do that? So I think Samsung has even talked about how that they have a machine that opens and closes the phone. What? like 200,000 times. Yeah, 200,000 times. Shot, right, they said they have a machine that does it. Yeah, and actually yeah. like when we were like when I was in crisis moment, I was like, what if we try to open the phone 2,000 times? 200,000 times. And Wilson's like, we don't our editor was like, we don't have time for that. <laughs> I was like, but we need to test this. No. They said they did this. We need to you. Know. So I mean, look, I actually think the whole thing is really, and I may write a piece about this, I kind of have to think it through a little bit more, but you zoom out and you look at the issues we've had with the ga- with gadgets in the last couple of weeks and months, and air power being one of them wasn't, they thought they could do it, and they and at the last minute clearly pulled the plug on it, likely because they've realized some things in real world testing. The Apple keyboard issue, which also is an issue that you don't really wouldn't spot till you were really using this device in in offices or dusty places or with people eating on top of them or people who are typing hard all all things that would be quite I mean you certainly could test them some systematic way with robots or 
spraying something on it. And now this. And I think um, I think it's all pointing to a really interesting and sort of scary trend for consumers where the gadget makers are very, very concerned with continuing to innovate and to continue to put out things that they want us to buy and continue to show both consumers and Wall Street that we can continue to make really flashy, great things and innovation in this area is not dead and are rushing things and not quite thinking through what that what will happen if they don't kill these products or take a little longer to test. It felt like this was going to be now the year of foldable phones. They weren't going to be amazing. They weren't going to be for everybody. But this was the year it was going to be like, oh, this is the next thing. And now it feels like it's definitely a, at least a year away. Like if this is the best that Samsung, who is probably as good or better at this than anybody, can do, we are not close. And we're not even as close as I thought we were. For me, I love the idea. And I, I could see this being what we want in our smartphones, right? A small phone when we need a, a phone and a larger screen tablet phony, phony thing when we don't when we when we want that, right? We don't need to always have this giant phone in our hands. We're, we're going to have many more chances to talk about the fold, I think, because this seems like a story that is not going to go away. Uh, well, I maybe guess let's, ever. let's all bet. Do we think that Samsung actually releases this phone? Let me reframe that slightly. Do you think they actually release this phone in 2019? Do we think Samsung releases ever again a phone that's called the Galaxy Fold? Yes. Yeah, they'll do that. I just don't know when. If if you put if I put the over under at January first, twenty twenty. Okay. Are you taking the over or the under? Mm, over. Me too. Yeah. Look, I'm, it's not like a Galaxy Note situation, Note Seven situation, where I think it hit as mass mainstream press awareness that like Samsung's phones were blowing up. Like it doesn't seem like that, but it, it does seem like this brand and this this phone itself has been tarnished pretty badly. I well, think don't forget they keep they kept making notes. They did, but they didn't make note sevens. True. And like they can't release the fold two when the fold one never released. I don't know. That would be a very Samsung move. <laughs> I kinda be. hope that's what they do. Maybe they'll just remove the O and it'll the just fold. be called fold. <laughs> I like it. So there was this great quote from a while back where Netflix CEO Reed Hastings said the company's biggest competitor wasn't HBO or ESPN or Fortnite, but actually it was sleep, which is a super wild thing for a tech company CEO to say. But I guess it's true. I mean, personally, I've seen Netflix defeat sleep in my own life kind of over and over. And it turns out Netflix is actually stealing from another area of many people's lives too, which is sex. To be fair, this might not just be a Netflix problem, but I don't want to spoil the whole story here. So Shalini Ramachandran, a journal reporter in New York, wrote a great story this week about what turned out to be the three least sexy words out there. Let's watch Netflix. So we're going to call her and see what else she learned about the shows that do and don't get people in the mood. Uh, She's off today, but let's see if we can get her. Shalini, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. So we all have one million billion questions for you. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. It's really just why. As the internet also had a million billion questions for you, it, as I saw on Precisely. <laughs> right. But so, okay, so let's let's start here, because I, I feel like I've never wondered this so much about a single story that I've read in the Wall Street Journal, which is 
How did you come to this story? <laughs> well, uh, so I have a, my cousin's husband and I were talking for a while about why our grand, grandparents and great-grandparents had so many kids. And he sort of said facetiously, well, it's because of no Netflix. And then we sort of looked at each other and we were like, huh, maybe that's actually a thing. And then I just started talking to some people here and there and like, and I have a 22 month old, so I definitely know that it happens in my house. So, you know, I, I was talking to couples and I started realizing that this is actually a thing and people are definitely choosing streaming over sex from time to time. And how did you, the lead of the story, does anyone have the story and read, can read the lead? Well, Shana, you can just tell us the the, the yeah. story about the sort of the people you were finding at the, at the beginning of this story. Yeah, sure. Well, so one of them uh, was were the Lozies who live in uh, Springfield, Illinois, and um, they talk about how um, she discussed how there was a time a few months ago when he came down the stairs after putting the kids to bed, and he thought that he he suggested they stream something steamy, um, and she was kind of like, "No, I want to watch The Prophet, which is this animated movie that's based on Khalil Gibran's book. Um, it's obviously not very sexy, and so." as it goes like often when Netflix wins they did not have sex that night and similarly there were many other couples who told me about these kinds of episodes where you know they're like well should we now let's watch x or y I'm going to read the quote because it's just so good. And that, my question there was, like, how did you find people willing to say this on the record? But I, here I we go. I that, too. I'm, I'm a mom. The 31-year-old digital marketing strategist explains, I literally just want to Netflix and chill. We stop there. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there are a lot of couples who talk about their um, Netflix dates. And um, if you look on Instagram, oh, there are so many people who have hashtag Netflix date and hashtag Netflix couple. So this is definitely a thing where it's, it's like a big part of people people's love lives to watch Netflix together and or just stream generally together. But then fall asleep because that's another great yes. anecdote in the in the piece too. somebody just they're like, yeah, we fall asleep. I feel like this is something like a sex columnist would respond to either in a, an encouraging or, or a tis- tisking kind of way. Did you were there any interesting follow ups? Well, I think Slate wrote a story saying that they completely disagree with the premise of ours, um, saying that, you know, Netflix obviously leads to more sex. But I, I didn't really seem to see that that was based on my anything. There were a lot of people who said, well, we obviously have sex. I realized that there may be, there's a a confluence of factors that go into this probably. Um, The kind of couple that chooses streaming over sex from time to time or often probably has kids, probably, you know, works long hours. When there's like this, uh, I don't know, cocktail of other factors in your life, streaming just seems so much more interesting (laughs) or so much more um, easier to do than sex. Now, there are a lot of uh, single people who are tweeting at me saying like, I don't think this is true. And, you know, we, we did a study um, or a survey with SurveyMonkey and we did see that one in four people said that they had turned down uh, sex for streaming in um, the prior six months. And among those ages, 18 to 38, the percentage was much higher. It's like 36% or something. And actually just uh, people, a social psychologist, I was talking to a lot of people who are studying why, what is behind the decline of American sex? Because it is known that sexual frequency has been declining over the past few decades. You know, us being on our phones, on our iPads or streaming or doing whatever we do, checking email at night, you get in the zone, you just stare there, like scrolling through your phone, scrolling through tweets or whatnot. And then at some point you're tired and you need to go to sleep. And there's probably like hour 
hours that you'd wasted where you could have been, you know, looking at your partner. It's interesting. Across the board, they're saying they're hearing about this from couples. Fascinating. And that was one of the things that was so striking to me. It's like, and Joanna, you and I were talking about this before, that the story starts off sort of hilarious and whimsical. And over the course of it, it gets to this point where it's, it's, I almost was sort of sad at the end of it. Like, it's very much this story about what technology is doing to all of the intimacy in in our lives. And it, it does seem like, you know, you mentioned Fortnite in the piece and things like this. And like, it does feel like this is a much bigger thing than just, you know, I'm watching a deeply unsexy show on Netflix. Uh, and it's like, it it felt so at the core of like all of this stuff that we're talking about with tech versus relationships. Right. I mean, one of the interesting things, because um, my editors were saying, well, what's the difference between, you know, streaming video um, and and just, you know, television, which has been around for decades? Like, mm. what what's changed now? And so I, I was asking a lot of the couples and the therapists, the sex therapists I talked to, I was asking this question. And it's the ease of use that's, that kept coming up. Like, well, when you're streaming, it's like one after another and you know know that you're going to like it. Like, you know, when you're binge watching Breaking Bad, random commercials are going to come up or your show's never going to end. The the kind of ease of letting yourself go inside is like one. I think one of the, the Lozies told me, and this wasn't didn't making the story, but um, it's like Netflix and fade into oblivion is how <laughs> he saw it. Um, <laughs> not Netflix and chill. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like it's been a long time since we've watched things with commercials. But I do feel like that's also part of it, like not having that break in the middle of something to like turn over to your spouse or your partner and like kiss or just say like have some other conversation about what just happened in the show or like connect on a human level versus like you just keep watching. Right. Like how many I mean, we've probably all been there. You start a show and you're like you you're like, oh, my God, it's 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. And we just couldn't stop watching because we just needed to know what happens on Stranger Things or 13 reasons why or whatever it is. Right. Or worse, you're watching separate things with your partner on an iPad and you on your TV. This has happened in my house many times. And you're just like sitting next to each other, not talking and and streaming a bunch of stuff. And then you look up and you're like, wait, should we have had fun the last two hours? Like had done something <laughs> else and stream? Yeah. At that point, you're like, are we even technically together, even though we're sort of near each other? We're basically not <laughs> near each other at all. Right. Well, that that's one of the, um, the, inter- the things that sex therapists were saying. They're saying the things that actually turn on human beings is when you look at each other and have interest in each other, talk to each other, have conversations and all these technology, you know, things that are thrown at us that, and that are like very engaging, they, they lead us to a place away from actually engaging with each other. I, I want to know the part of the reporting of this story that involved you talking to Netflix, because you got what I think is one of the most amazing corporate statements I think I've ever seen. And I want to know, like, how does Netflix respond when you go to them and you say, so I have it on good authority that you're ruining people's sex lives. Uh, what do you say to that? Like, what, how does that conversation go? <laughs> well, um, the the spokesman there uh, is a, was a good sport. and um, But honestly, they were kind of pushing back in their statement. Um, and their statement... I think all, even though this is a lighthearted story, I think all technology companies at this this moment in time are a little sensitive to the idea that they're impinging on people's lives. Like, mm. um, and so, you know, given all the privacy things and, and the debates about Facebook and tech addiction. So Netflix was pushing back um, and they were kind of saying, well, there's been a decades long decline in sex. Like, how could we be a part of it? Um, Americans average only two hours a day of streaming on their TVs. They were 
were a little defensive, I more so than I even expected them to be. <laughs> and uh, but you know they 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 gave a, a funny um, comment about how they they don't think they're behind this decades long uh, decline in sex and even it's beyond even their programming abilities. But um, <laughs> it, I, it, yeah, they say getting to... credit for decades long decline in sex is even is beyond even our programming abilities. Right. It's pretty good. <laughs> it is. It's pretty good. Um, I do think that it touch anything like this, even when lighthearted, touches a sore spot for tech companies these days. Did you change anything in your life after reporting this? Let That's me rephrase so Mims's question that. there. Now, Are you having so more like... sex? <laughs> One thing that I thought was funny was a lot of people were like, "Hell yeah, I'm streaming instead of having sex. Sex is overrated." <laughs> Well, I mean, I have to say, I have a 22-month-old, so that's the, the biggest birth control out there. Um, I, I think that, you know, there are other the people that I talk to, um, some of the couples are like, as I'm talking to you, I find this is really sad. So I think we're going to change something. I, I also wonder if there's going to be a pushback on things like TVs in bedrooms and where people charge their phone and things like that. And this feels like, again, sort of right in the middle of that whole, like, what is how does tech come into our bedroom conversation in a way that I feel like not enough people are having? One of the sex therapists I talked to said there is research out there, and I haven't looked at it personally, but that um, couples that have TVs in their bedroom have less sex. Hmm. Hmm. I heard that people with 4K TVs have less sex. Interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I just made that up. But, but 8K, weirdly, way but 8K, more. Yeah, 8K is great for sex. Yeah. It's a new ad that just out from Samsung. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, before we get to Oleg Stavitsky and the algorithmically driven future of music, it's time for Today I Learned. Mims, you have one, uh, and it's about Elon Musk, because we have to talk about Elon Musk every single week on this podcast or something horrible will happen. We have to talk about him this week because he said that uh, Tesla, having never built a single microchip before, uh, built the best microchip in the world for autonomous driving, better than market leader um, NVIDIA, who you think would know a thing or two about microchips. And um, he said that it was going to lead to uh, a fleet of one million robot taxis within two years. And so that therefore it is financially to buy any car other than a Tesla. Because if, if you buy a Tesla today, it's got the new computer in it. You can just rent your car out to strangers forever and, and the car will cost you effectively nothing. So there's a lot of assumptions built into that. Anyway, today <laughs> yeah. I learned that um, every analyst who, who was quoted anywhere weighing in on whether or not this is going to happen said that, as usual, we should take Elon seriously, but not literally. And, and no one believes him or that timeline. So it was... All these proclamations from from Elon Musk, were they based on anything? I mean, I, I only read a little bit about it, but his thing where he's like, we made the best chip ever, seems like one of those things that you only say when there's no actual data to back it up. Well, I dug in a little bit, and uh, and even NVIDIA posted a blog post uh, where they were kind of like, yeah, kudos to Tesla for raising the bar. By the way, if you want to compete with them, we're the only game in town, so please buy our stuff. Mm. And it does appear that uh, if you're looking at just raw performance, like teraflops, per watt, uh, their chip actually is the best. You can get a more powerful overall computer from NVIDIA, but some Tesla wongs told me that that computer would draw 500 watts, which is a big deal in an electric car. That is true, but everything else about like, oh, you know, we have enough sensors on these cars, you know, it's just a software problem. 
before we get a fully self-driving taxi like that is just it's it's so many unknowns and unknowables um and 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 no one can tell and and when has elon musk ever 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 in the history of his muskian proclamations met a deadline i can think of maybe like two occasions i was gonna say i'm not sure there have been any like he's he's close sometimes but he's very rarely on time with anything and but it's also just one of those things where he there are very few people i feel like who can say those things and kind of get away with it like if ford came out and was like we'll have robot taxis in a year everybody be like okay ford but elon musk says it and everybody's like well it seems plausible enough yeah it's wild right because tesla keeps losing money like everybody else these days who's a tech company um and you know he made these pronouncements like right before it came out in their financials that they were not delivering as many uh, Model 3s as they had hoped. Um, but it but it just works, you know? He, he, he says, hey, this is the future. We're the segment leaders, market leaders. And I think it gives people reason to believe because it, it always comes down to like, well, you know, Tesla could fail at X, Y, or Z, but here's a new thing that they might succeed at. And if they do and they become dominant, then, you know, my investment pays off whether that's building a battery gigafactory or I don't know, apparently now Tesla will just become a potentially a semiconductor, uh, a chip designer for all the other self-driving vehicles. So just, you know, if, if this whole building cars things doesn't work out, they at least have a bunch of other options. Absolutely. Uh, coming up in just a second, my interview with Oleg Stavitsky, the founder of Endel, a company that makes algorithmically generated music personalized just for you and also will release 20 records this year. What's a record? So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it and massive compute power or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Welcome back. Before we get back into it, let me play you something. This is a song called, well actually it doesn't have a name. It's being generated automatically in real time, specifically for me. All I did was open an app called Endel and choose from a bunch of different moods. There's on the go. There's focus. There's relax. And there's sleep. Whichever you pick, the music changes by time of day, my location, and lots more. It's designed to be this perfect, algorithmically generated soundtrack to my life. But Endel isn't a band, really. The quote-unquote songwriters on its tracks are actually software engineers. But they signed a deal earlier this year with Warner Music Group that would have them release 20 different albums this year. A bunch of them are actually already out, and they have these amazing algorithm-sounding song titles like Seven Milk Soft and Fourteen Shining Slumber. But it's all really nice background music for almost any activity. Endel's CEO is Oleg Stavitsky, and I called him this week in Berlin to talk about why he built Endel and what it says about the future of music. But first, I made him do what I've never been able to, explain what Endel is. Is it a band? Is it a composer? I call it a technology, and behind that technology, there is an algorithm. And what that algorithm does is it takes in um, a number of inputs, 
objective inputs like the time of day, the weather, your heart rate and subjective inputs, you know, like your movement, um, calendar appointments, things like that. Like we, we don't have calendar yet, but it's coming later this year or even the traffic situation around you. So we plug those inputs in and then what the algorithm does is depending on those inputs, it chooses the right samples, the right stems, and it splices those stems together and it overlays them with some post-processing effects and some drones and uh, that results in that soundscape. So what I would love to emphasize is, um, you know, this approach, this compositional approach, if you will, has been here for a long time. Like we're talking like, you know, Steve Wright or um, Philip Glass did that or Brian Eno did that. So essentially, what they have been doing, they have been creating this system and they, they would set the rules and then the system would kind of play itself using the rules that they have set. So we're essentially using the same compositional approach, but we're infusing that with you know modern technology, basically. And we're, we're coupling that with the science of the circadian rhythms, with neuroscience behind you know how music influences your cognitive state and with, uh, you know, all that technology that allows us to understand the context of your day. Yeah. So I actually, I want to know way more about that. Because one of the things that's that's fascinating to me is, it seems like at the very beginning of this, you have to teach a computer what good music is. You know, you could put notes together in a terrible way or a nice way, and you have to teach this system how to understand the difference. Like, how do you do that? What does that look like? Essentially, you have to create a system where you can't, where the user can't go wrong. Right. Like, so no matter what you do, it's always I mean, it stays harmonic. Mm. Like, and yeah, we I mean, this I'm, I'm missing my sound designer voice here because he would explain to you in great detail, like using music, music theory, you know how this is done. But essentially it's us like it's not the computer. It's the engineers and the sound designer who have to set the rules, you know, like, and then basically the system cannot go beyond those rules. It cannot use um, certain scales or certain tones that, you know, would make it sound uh, unpleasant, if you will, mm -hmm. or yeah, like uh, out of tune. So we set those boundaries. Got it. Okay. Tell me about this, this sort of mix between people's lives and what you're able to do because it seems like you're more interested you have this deal with warner but the the distinct sense i get from reading other interviews with you is that you're way more interested in this idea of kind of life soundtracking as opposed to like making albums you put on spotify is that fair to say that's a hundred percent true okay. absolutely yeah like the deal with Warner was a spin-off, an experiment, and still is like it has little to do with what we're building. <laughs> okay, so in that, as you think about that stuff, like take me through kind of how you think about where Endel and and music fits into people's days. I mean, you're mentioning calendar and time of day and traffic situations. Like, what's your sense of kind of how someone's sort of personalized soundtrack is supposed to work for them? I think you know, there's a lot of situations in our life where traditional music does not work, or, but you need some help, right? Like, I mean, you need help with focusing. Sometimes you just need to, you need help with unwinding, unwinding after like a very stressful meeting, or you need help going to sleep. And traditional music is, I mean, you either have to go and choose a very specific song that you know would work for you, 
or you just don't have the time or, you know, like your mind is not there. And I think this is where we come in. Like we, we're basically, we're, we understand the context of your day. And we also understand the science of the circadian rhythms. And what that science tells us is that your body is going through certain cycles. So we know which phase you're in right now based on the science of the circadian rhythms. So we basically can create this perpetual adaptive and very personalized soundtrack to your life. And yes, we do collect that data about you, but we're probably one of the few companies that collect that data not to serve you ads, but to make your life to make your life better. But doesn't that kind of assume that everyone has the same music taste? I mean, how do you account for the fact that some people might listen to, you know, heavy metal to wind down while other people want really like classical music? If you've noticed, I never used the word music. True. Because we don't call ourselves uh, our soundscapes uh, music. We call them functional sound environments, and that's what they are, or what Brian Eno calls that uh, it's furniture music. Mm. So this sound is not designed for you to be consciously listening it to. It's designed to kind of blend with the background and create this comfortable space around you. So the moment you're noticing, um, you know, the sounds that we're generating, the moment you're listening to them consciously, this means that we're not doing our job because our job is to create the soundscape which will help you, you know, relax, which will tune out distractions or we will help you focus or help you go to sleep. That's the idea. That's why we've chosen ambient because it's so neutral. I mean, it's hard to argue with ambient, right? So it's like, it's, it's, it's very, very, very neutral. And because we've been toying around with an idea of introducing different genres, but we don't want to go there because the moment we open that door, this means we're dealing with people's tastes and yeah, people's tastes are so different and it's very hard to please everybody. Yeah, that's fair. Like, could your technology do sort of similar things? Could you make you know, pop or rock music that that would work in the same sorts of systems. It doesn't seem like the the tech that you're talking about would be all that far off from being able to do that kind of thing. We could, but I wouldn't want to go there, to be honest, uh, because I mean, I want to be very cautious here because there's a lot of companies out there that are working on AI that is designed to create like song, like music in the traditional sense. And we have somehow, because of all that media craziness with the Warner deal, found ourselves to be like, you know, the poster child for that. <laughs> and there, there was like a lot of ridiculous headlines, like uh, an algorithm joins Madonna and Ed Sheeran at Warner Music's roster, which is ridiculous, right? <laughs> but pe pe people were literally like writing, writing that, or like the end is nigh, an algorithm just inked a deal with Warner Music, like those kind of headlines. I don't think that the AI technology is there yet to create like a so a proper song that you would enjoy listening to, like consciously listening to. I don't think we're there yet. That makes sense. I mean, it does seem like you're coming along at a really interesting time, which is, you know, we have this thing where so many songs are featuring the same garage band drum loops and everything is being made on computers and everything is auto-tuned. And so I think... It's sort of easy to draw a line. I'm not sure it's correct to draw this line, but it's easy to draw a line to, you know, well, eventually we're going to take the human all the way out of this equation and it all happens on a computer anyway. Somebody will just figure out how to do it automatically. Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we have sparkled the conversation that was kind of waiting to happen. 
And we, we were just, I don't know, we were just the match that lead that. We're not here to replace musicians. Right. Not, not, not our business. Fair enough. Um, okay, so give me like give me one like super practical example here. Maybe the the relax, which is one I've I've used a lot personally. There's a lot of similarity in some of the ambient music, but they're all they each have their own different feel that I have a hard time sort of describing in words. So I'm hoping that maybe you can. Yeah, I mean this has a lot to do with our in-house, you know, sound engineer and the composer and my partner Dmitry Yevgrafov. That's his doing. So basically. So he creates all of these tiny little stems and he feeds them into the algorithm. And then we sit there and we listen to the result. And I'm like, I often turn around and I would say like, Dima, this is too dark. Like, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just morbid. Yeah. Like, can we, yeah. Can we do something about it? So again, you know, like it's it, at the end, you know, there, there, there is, there is a live person behind that. So he is even, but what he does, he, he, instead of like creating the whole song, he puts in all the little puzzle pieces into the algorithm and then the algorithm assembles them in different ways, in different combinations. So yeah, it comes down to, you know, um, using the neuroscience behind, you know, how certain frequencies and scales and tones influence your cognitive state. So based on that, he creates those tiny little stems and he then puts them into the algorithm and then the algorithm splices them together. And then we sit there and listen to that. And we're like, hmm, yeah, it's not it's not there yet. No, let's let's do something about it. And then I would go, hey, why don't we add, I don't know, the bells? And he would look at me and he would go like, Oleg, you know, if we add the bells, they have this frequency, which will make you distracted. Like, we're not going to add bells. And I'm like, OK, yeah. so that's, it's a dialogue. And ultimately, it sounds like based on the way you're making this stuff that what I would hear would be different from what you would hear but maybe only slightly, that we're not going to hear two different, totally different versions of, of what relax might sound like, but they'll be sort of slightly tweaked to our own day and time and mood and whatever else. Is that right? That is correct. And that's going to change very soon. There is a big update coming to the app. So what, and that update takes our personalization to the next level because we're like the for example, the weather is going to play way more like a bigger role than it does now, because what the weather essentially means for us is the amount of light that you're getting. And we couple that with the science of the circadian rhythms. For example, it's 10 a.m. now. And so we, we know that the, your best productivity phase is from like 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's the best time for you to get some work done. Um, but if there is not enough light, that means that you're um, basically, you know, not getting enough, um, you know, sorry, yeah, let me rephrase that. If there is not enough light, that means that, you know, you could feel a bit sleepy. So in that case, we would intensify the focus mode tremendously, like big time. Like there, there's what we call focus plus, and that's going to happen, you know, just because it's cloudy where you are. So, yeah, things are about to change. We want to be an app where you launch, you just press play, and that's it. Yeah, we, we, will, we will take care of you. I really do recommend checking out at least Endel's albums on Spotify or Apple Music. They're all about sleep for now, but there's more coming, and they're really good background noise. The app is great too, but at $5.99 a month, it's really not cheap. 
Anyway, that's our show. Thanks to Oleg, Shalini, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message wherever you get podcasts. By the way, there's a new app out this week called Luminary that's trying to do a subscription podcast thing. It's definitely worth checking out. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at personaltech at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.